Let's pray. Father, we're approaching your word, so we ask for your blessing and your help in doing what we're doing. We're coming to a great and holy thing, your very words, and we ask for you to awaken our hearts to it and rejoice in the wisdom and the truth that Jesus brings to us. It's really salvation here to tell us the difference between religion and knowing you. We thank you in Christ's name, amen. Well, I know you may have missed an hour's sleep last night, and, uh, but you should stay awake today because this is pretty important stuff here. This text is one of those really foundational truths about uh, what Christianity is, what biblical Christianity is, your relationship with God. In some very important ways, uh, this is the heart of the Christian faith because it's about our hearts. And you know what Jesus is going to say here makes some people very uncomfortable because, well, some people are kind of wired to want everything really easy. Like they would rather faith be packaged in a nice set of rules and you just hand me the rules and I'll do those things and then I know I'm good with God. Um, that, but that's not what it's about. And some people prefer it that way. You can't do it that way and have a relationship with God that's vital and real and saving. Uh, it's not about a set of rules. And there, if there's a theme here, it would have to be that the real, real Christianity is a matter of the heart, your heart, and its relationship to God. So when I say that, I don't mean feelings. I mean, feelings are great, and I have a lot of feelings for the Lord, but that's not what we mean by heart. We, we mean um, devotion, uh, a predisposition, affection. The affections of the heart is a good way to say it. And what we will learn is that real Christianity is how the heart responds to truth, not just feeling God, but the truth of God and the greatness of the gospel and who God is. That's what we want to um, have our hearts inflamed by. And if that's not there, if there's no heart for that, there's no salvation there. Also, you don't want to monkey around with um, the truth, right? Because your heart is going to be directed by the truth. So you don't want to take away from the truth, you don't want to add from the truth. Uh, you've got to deal with the truth as it is. The heart has to embrace the truth as it is. And um, nobody, no religious leaders or anybody should be fooling around with that. Most, most religions are really very satisfied if the forms of it are honored. You know, if all the outward rituals and the ethics and the rules are respected, they're very happy with that. The priests and the shamans, they'll, they'll kind of measure you by this external conformity to sort of ruleness. And every church, every group has some sort of expectations or rules. We do certain things a, way, a certain way here. But if you can do all the things we kind of do here externally and not have a heart that belongs to God, it's really easy to do that. Jesus will not allow us to think that way. And what's really interesting here is the issue that kind of brings up this incredible discussion, this profound things that Jesus is going to say really starts over what seems to be really trivial, which is washing your hands before you eat. So we start with Jesus, uh, we're kind of picking up from last time when Jesus walked on the water right out to the guys in the boat and, and now the boat's going to shore on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee um, and immediately he's recognized and when Jesus gets recognized by this stage in his, his ministry, crowds are coming. So verse 34, chapter 14, it says, when they crossed over they came to the land of Gennesaret and when the men of that place recognized him they sent word into all the surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick and they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were cured. So miracles are happening to many, many people. 
But some, some people, they're not that interested in miracles. Because uh, if we keep reading into chapter 15, it says, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. I don't know if these guys were there and saw all these miracles, or they came a little bit after that, but they know what's been going on. And what are they concerned about? You ate that muffin without washing your hands. <laughs> this is not a, a health-based discussion here. It's not about germs. In fact, people didn't know germs existed back then. Uh, it's not about whether mommy should make the kids wash their hands before eating. That is a good idea. Um, what's being addressed is a religious issue in chapter 15, verse 2. This delegation... Uh, described in verse 1 is not only, it's, it's not from the county health department. Let me just put it like that. It's a committee of investigation from Jerusalem, the heart of their faith, made up of scribes and Pharisees, the most um, Bible literate people, and they're there to observe and report. And for them, they're, they're just stunned right away. I mean, Jesus' men grabbing a quick bite of bread without washing their hands. That, that is evidence of sin. It's breaking the religious rules. And they ask the question, um, which is the real issue for them, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Now notice those words. What don't they say? They don't say, why are they violating the law of Moses? There are no laws in Moses on hand washing as applies to that particular situation. The, the few, there are some Mosaic instructions on washing your hands. The priests were supposed to wash thoroughly in the performance of their duties. And there's a lot of things in the Old Covenant law that if you touch them, you become ritually unclean and you're supposed to wash your hands or whatever part of your body was touched with, uh, with flowing water. That's an important concept there. But a general command to wash your hands before you eat any bread, that's not in, that's not in the Bible. It's nowhere, and Moses didn't say anything about that. But in first century Judaism, the tradition of the elders was equal in importance with the law of God. So you couldn't just say, well, yeah, well, that's your rule. That's not, you don't say that. That's what Jesus is going to say. But uh, people didn't say that. In the minds of the scribes and the Pharisees, the traditions of the elders just applied Moses to life, and that's what they were doing. So to them, it was binding. They would say something like, you know, Moses didn't say it, but he would have said it if he'd thought of it. We're just showing you what it means to be ritually pure. And he did talk about being ritually pure and we're helping him with this. We're helping you. I think that's the way they probably said it. Sometimes they were very direct. There's one place in the Talmud, the collection of Jewish rabbinical writings, that's very ancient. It says to be against the words of the scribes is more punishable than to be against the words of Moses. So that, that, that's kind of elevating these guys a little above their station there. So if you gasped when you heard that, and I did hear a gasp or two, they would say, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, why not have wise men apply the law in a way that you can understand it so you'll be careful not to break it? Well, yeah, okay. Well, everybody kind of went along with that. So that's how it kind of ha- turned out that way. So to some of you, that sounds very familiar, that sort of attitude, because you may have grown up or been part of a church that did the same thing. The pastor or the church traditions made rules for you that the Bible doesn't even hint at. 
It's a, it isn't part of the Bible at all. It, it, and that elevates men to an equal authority with the Bible, and that's something the Protestant Reformation freed us from. But here's an example of how one group might create a tradition based on a good thing. We'll take fasting. So it doesn't command us to fast in the New Testament, but Jesus did say when you fast. So just taking him at his word, he's expecting us to fast. So fasting is a good thing. It's from God. It's done in the Bible. Great saints fasted all these years. Um, Jesus fasted. His disciples fasted. So to help you, just to help you fulfill God's will, we learned men will tell people when to fast, how to fast, what people can or cannot eat on certain days, and we may even invent some rituals around it so that people don't misuse it by being irreverent or foolish. And if you don't do what we say, you're not a good Christian. <laughs> That's kind of how those things grow. That's how they come about. That kind of thing is exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees did in abundance. If you, if you grab the Babylonian Talmud, which is just one set of rabbinical, it's like, it's like an encyclopedia, it's that big all the rules, extra rules, about how you conduct your life. I've got a whole volume of that at home, just on the Sabbath. So Moses says, don't work on the Sabbath. And they've got a whole book on how not to work on the Sabbath, you know, all the things you have to be careful with. They, that's why they were always clashing with Jesus on Sabbath questions. So, um, amazingly, Christians have done the same kind of thing down through the centuries, just established extra rules that aren't biblical. It's amazing because the whole New Testament is actually quite against making rules for people that are not from Scripture. In other words, you can make rigid standards for yourself. You might need to based on your own life and your own sin patterns and things like that. But to impose those on everybody else is not a Christian thing to do. Why is it wrong to do that? Well, it's wrong because God is perfect and the Bible perfectly expresses the will of God. Therefore, we have a, a duty to understand the Bible and apply it as he has given it to us. And if it helps us to add rules to maintain those things, that's fine for us. But to impose those rules on other people is a big problem. Why is it a big problem? Because God is perfect. He's given us a perfect word. And we are imperfect. There you go. So when we start doing that, we can make a lot of mistakes doing that. And actually hurt people. So when we exalt man-made traditions to the status of scripture, making our rules a binding authority on the conscience and giving our ideas and opinions on, as an equal standing with scripture, we have added imperfection to perfection. That's the problem. And you don't want to do that, ever. And you don't want to follow people that are doing that. You got to be really careful. So we risk throwing obedience to God's commands all out of balance. And frequently, frequently we even distort or twist what God intended. And actually, when you do that, the original intent often gets lost in the rules that people make. So you don't want that. You want to grasp the original intent that God had for his laws and commandments and things. Well, as far as hand washing goes, Jesus responds to the Pharisees' questions with a kind of a bruising, crushing, devastating question of his own. Verse three, he answered and said to them, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? <laughs> Whoa, is this your arrow tanto? I mean, that's like, that's a, that's a sharp one. So look at these verses again, these two questions, one question from the Pharisees and one question from Jesus, because that's gonna set up the whole conversation. Pharisees, 
You transgress the tradition of the elders. Jesus, you transgress the commandment of God. That's the tension. That's where it's all at right there. Jesus says you transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. And worse than that, they were actually using the tradition to break God's law. And that's what he's gonna start explaining here in verse four. And he gives, a, he gives an example. This must have been something that Jesus observed in life growing up many times how this was done. And he's, he's probably been waiting a long time to tell somebody this. But um, verse four, for God said, honor your father and mother And, he's quoting Moses, he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Okay, there's a lot there. Jesus says, God has a law. Honor your father and mother. And there's another law that supports that law. He who speaks evil of father or mother shall be put to death. That's God's law. Honor your parents. We, we actually, in our culture, we kind of celebrate a certain amount of, well, those teens are just kind of, you know, finding themselves and they're cursing their parents and speaking back to their parents because they're, you know, they have to grow into their own adulthood. They'd kill you for that under the law of Moses, actually. It's a, it's a death penalty for speaking and cursing your parents. But that's God's law to honor your parents. And obviously, he takes it really seriously. Now, did they really kill people? I don't know, maybe. I have a friend that grew up in Iraq, and they would have done that. He said that's what, they were Christians. They were uh, Eastern Orthodox type Christians. He says, yeah, curse your father, they kill you. Of course, I mean, that's normal. You don't have to kill too many. (laughs) You don't. You go to school one day and Where's Steve? He texted me last night. He cursed his parents. and They took him to the magistrate today and they executed him this morning. Okay, mom, what can I do for you? Okay. <laughs> um, obviously, God takes it seriously by the penalties he puts on it. Even if our culture doesn't take it seriously, but God does take it seriously. And just as obviously, it means more than just to obey your parents the honor your father and mother thing. That's why Jesus brings up this other thing about your speech. To honor something or someone is a matter of the heart and it suggests love and high regard and a spirit of respect and consideration for them. And it's fascinating that Jesus brings up Exodus 21, 17, death to anyone who curses their parents because that's part of the Old Testament we're supposed to be embarrassed about. You know, that's what atheists bring up. You know, in your Bible it says that, well, Jesus isn't embarrassed about it. Jesus actually brings it up as part of his uh, conversation here. He's not embarrassed at all. He, he explicitly affirms the legitimacy, the, the justice of the death penalty for doing something so wretched as to dishonor your parents. Something we think of as just rude, God thinks of as societally destructive and not permissible. So why does Jesus bring it up? Because the penalty shows the, the depth of um, condemnation that God brings to it. Death penalty crimes in the Old Testament are societally destructive crimes. That's why those things aren't permitted. And if they had followed those laws and took them to heart, they would have had a very just and moral society. Not like ours. These are the words we're talking about here. Um, The words represent the heart, what comes out of the heart 
is socially destructive. Obviously then to honor your parents is serious. So Jesus says honoring them, for example, means if they're old and they have needs financially because they can't work anymore, you know, they didn't have social security in ancient Israel, working class people could rarely afford to save a lot of money. So in their old age, your parents would probably be brought into the home and cared for until they died. But some children who don't have love in their hearts don't want to assume any burdens like that. They think, I've got my life to live. Uh, my, I've got my own family to think about. I, I work hard for what I have. They, they start thinking like that. And their motives um, for what this practice Jesus is going to talk about were very less than honorable. And the scribes and the Pharisees did this kind of thing themselves. That's why he brings it up. A tradition of the elders arose that said anything you declared belonging to God, even if you didn't give it, can't be used for any other purpose. It's as though you took your money or your thing, your objects, your priceless things and took them to the altar and laid them on the altar of the temple and gave them to God. It's the same thing, just declaring those things uh, so when, when mom calls and says, you know, dad can't work anymore and uh, I've been very ailing and we just need a little bit of food to make it, it's, oh, mom, I'd love to help. But you know, that $10,000 I've got, I've dedicated it to God. I know it's in my bank account, but I've already dedicated it to God. I'm so sorry. Good luck. Corbin, they called it. Uh, they called it Corbin. It's dedicated to God. And they did that with all kinds of things. And it was a tool to hang on to stuff yourself and not let anybody else touch it because you've dedicated it to God. And Jesus saw that whole shtick, you know. There's all kinds of religious ways to be um, heartless and cruel, and this is one of them. It became a religious way not to be generous and not to honor your parents. And uh, so Jesus knew that it was an attack on the commandment, honor your father and mother. Really, it's an attack on God himself because uh, you're using his name to withhold assistance, right? So um, that's a pretty horrible thing. Well, it's conclusion in verse six, and by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. I've heard the most bizarre uses of scripture in my many years to justify all kinds of sins. I mean, they, they just come streaming back to my mind. I've seen the Bible used, I talked to a woman on the radio, I was being interviewed on the radio by a woman who was off the air, was using the Bible to justify racial segregation. And that's very common. Uh, used to be very common in the South. It's less, much less common now, but um, you know, the, the Bible says God set the boundaries for all people, so we don't have to ever talk to or be near um, you know, those other people. Uh, that kind of thing. And I've seen the Bible used to justify getting high right? Genesis 121, I've given you every green plant yielding seed. It is food for you, right? I've, that's a very common one I hear today. <laughs> kind of skips over the curse put on creation part, but um, oh, okay, well, why don't you eat that poisonous plant over there? Um, <laughs> I've seen the Bible used to promote perverse sexual lifestyles. David and Jonathan, you know, they were pretty good friends. They seemed awfully close back there. In the, uh, people, they do all kinds of weird stuff. People that don't know, know the bonds of male friendship from, uh, soldiers know that bond. The guys that have been in combat together, they know exactly what the Bible's talking about, that relationship that David and Jonathan had. But um, maybe because we don't have friends anymore, I don't know. But people don't know what those things mean. 
Sinful people will always bend the Bible to serve their sin. They're going to do it. They're going to do it. And then people get frustrated and say things like, you can make the Bible say anything. Because they hear people doing that, justifying whatever. And Christians do it sometimes too in different ways. Anyone can claim anything about anything. That's the truth. So anyone can claim anything about anything. So yeah, sure, some people are going to claim anything the Bible says anything. That doesn't mean that everything is meaningless. Just because anyone can claim anything about anything doesn't mean the Bible is meaningless or that everything is meaningless. It, the Bible does have meaning and it's very clear, generally speaking, and it's sinful to claim the Bible says what it doesn't say. It's sinful. It's sinful to try to avoid accountability to God by saying, you know, anything can be made out of the Bible. That's, that's sinful to do that because that's not true. It's pretty clear, actually. The Bible does not promote racist theories. The Bible does not support getting high. The Bible is not in favor of sexual perversions. It it doesn't tell you that you can dedicate stuff to God so that you can withhold it from someone in your family who has a need. It doesn't tell you that. All that kind of thing is wicked men putting their dirty little fingers on a pure book. That's all that is. And that doesn't mean you uh, just go, well, we might as well give up on, no, you don't give up. You just be faithful. Can I tell you a little secret? Let me tell you a secret about how life works, how civilizations work, Christian civilizations work. When a social movement happens in a country and tries to overthrow the existing structures and morality of that country, and when it actually succeeds, then you'll find a lot of people going to the Bible and saying, oh, you know, we misunderstood this the whole time. You thought that's what the Bible taught for 2,000 years, but actually, now that we've come to this enlightened place and now we're here, it really doesn't mean that at all. You're gonna find plenty of people to say stuff like that, and they'll have all their um, nebulous arguments about it. Happens all the time, all the time. Recent scholars have shown that the Bible has been misunderstood for 2,000 years, and it really has nothing to say about whatever this latest thing we approve of is. You know, I can't think of any examples of people... I can't think of any legitimate examples of people using the Bible after the fact to justify some major social change. Good social changes, and society needs changes, it always does, that flow out of the Bible, the Bible was the fountain for those changes. And that's a very different thing, a very different thing. I can think of a lot of examples of the Bible Um, being used for that. Human rights, the dignity of man, the fundamental equality of all men before God. Those aren't ideas, oh, now that we know know that, let's go back and see if we can find it. No, those were ideas that sprang from the Bible. You didn't have to read them back into the Bible. Slavery became a serious moral problem after the discovery, the Europeans discovered the new world. They needed labor to exploit the new world and become fabulously wealthy. So Western countries were challenged by the the lure of vast wealth on the one hand and the Bible's clear teaching on the other hand about fundamental dignity and the rights that even slaves have. You know, in the law of Moses, there is slavery, but the slaves have all kinds of rights that were never practiced in this country or in the colonies and the, the worst ones were the island countries. The most profound example of the Bible's direct impact on the culture was the movement to abolish the slave trade and then slavery itself, ultimately. And many of the leading abolitionists were Christians and the hard work of abolition was done by Christians. 
That's also true of prison reform. It's true of um, care for the poor. It's uh, all kinds of things. The establishment of hospitals. Dueling. Dueling. People never think about dueling. Anybody worried about the sin of dueling? In the 1800s, that was one of the most common subjects of the pulpit in America, attacking the sin of dueling, murdering people for pride. You know, that was a big issue. We don't hear about it anymore because out of the scripture, that culturally acceptable practice was attacked by godly people and it was ultimately put down and outlawed. That's a good thing. Taking on systemic injustice, barbarism, rank cruelty uh, were massive tasks that Christians took on having the Bible behind them. This whole work that Zoe's doing, Zoe International is doing, is, is flowing out of the Bible. It's view of people and their dignity and the value they have to God and they're not to be misused. That's it's all the whole thing, the protection of children. Anyway, let's get back to the main topic here, which is the traditions of men, which can often interfere with those great truths. So it's always wrong when churches invent rules that are directly contrary to Scripture. Uh, uh, Here's a famous thousand-year-old example. About a thousand years ago, um, the Roman Catholic Church decreed that um, no priests or ministers could be married. Now, long before that, they could be, but they made a rule that nobody could be. And it came from a twisted view of celibacy as a morally, spiritually superior state of being. Whereas the Bible doesn't teach that. Paul says, I like being single. and You can do a lot more for the Lord when you're single, but if you're married, that's fine too. In fact, he said, it's better to marry than to burn. How many priests have been pushed into a position of life where by being committed to their church, they had to burn forever and fall and abase themselves and humiliate themselves and do terrible things that they regretted because they weren't allowed to do what the Bible gave them to do. What does the Bible say about bishops? What does it say about elders in the church? They're supposed to be the husband of one wife. That's what they're supposed to be. In fact, being single would be more of a a questionable thing there since it says to be the husband of one wife. That's a qualification, right? So what a weird way to just completely stand the Bible on its head and impose a human tradition and destroy so many lives, still being destroyed today. First Timothy chapter three um, actually warns about false teachers who forbid marriage. And yet the whole Christian system placed human tradition that singleness was somehow more holy. So Jesus says you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. And Jesus, he's not confused Jesus doesn't whine about how everyone can make the Bible say whatever they want. See, Jesus doesn't go, well, you guys can just make the Bible say whatever you want. I'm not gonna be the Messiah anymore. No, he doesn't think like that. He just, he says God is really clear. It's really clear if you submit yourself to what God says, don't add to it, don't take away from it. Jesus just uses, here's a really radical idea for you. He uses discernment to, to, to see what's really going on and compares it with scripture. And he can see clearly what's going on. He measures what they say by God's word. And he isn't slow to say, you got it wrong. You're adding to it or you're ignoring it. And that's just what Luther and Calvin and the reformers did. They measured things by the Bible, by scripture, and that's why there was a reformation. That's why we're their descendants spiritually. Jesus has one word for people who bend scripture to suit their desires. It's in verse seven. You hypocrites, 
You hypocrites. We mentioned earlier in the book that um, the Greek word for actor is hypocrites. That's where we get our word hypocrites, actors, pretenders. Many years ago when I used to be in the vacation Bible school plays, we're talking about a lot of years ago, don't, you don't want to know about it, but I was at a community meeting in town, I think it was a school board meeting or something like that, and, and um, I was sitting there, it was an empty chair, and this woman um, said, is that chair taken? And I said, no, 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 and she sat down and she looks at me, and she goes, oh, you're the actor. Because she, she brought her kids to VBS, and she sat around during the play, and she saw me do that. So had she been speaking Greek, she would have said, oh, you're the hypocrite. <laughs> and she wouldn't be the first person to say that to me either. <laughs> Hypocrite's a pretty harsh word, but uh, Jesus is using it very appropriately. Pious faces, religious language, and actions that serve ourselves over other people, over our duties to other people. How easy it is to mask unkindness and cruelty in religious garb. And Jesus recalls the words of Isaiah in verse seven, he says, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Wow, there it is. It's one of the great verses in the whole Bible to protect you. So now we're starting to see some deeper truths about religion, about worship, about what counts and what doesn't count in God's eyes. Look at this quote from Isaiah 29 here, he, he uses here. If you stop and just circle the key words here, heart, vain, which means empty, worship, and men. God is observing worshipers. And he has a ruler to measure the genuineness of our worship. And what's he measuring? When he observes our worship this morning, what is God measuring? Is it the loudest voice? Is it the most pious facial expression? I can make one of those. Is it the biggest Bible? Is it the words we say? And there's nothing wrong with singing loud and having a pious facial expression if it's from the heart, right? There's nothing wrong with having a big Bible. Mine's kind of medium-sized. But, um, and the words we say, if they're true, are good. But none of that means anything if the heart is far from the Lord. It's got to be near him, he says, near. He uses that near and far language. So when God, the measure God uses is how near to me is that person's heart. Near or far? That's what he cares about. That's what God cares about. All the other religious stuff, all the trappings, the intensity of emotion, he's not looking for that. There's nothing wrong with emotion if it's based on reality. But Jesus is giving us this tool, it's this great tool of, for self-evaluation. Is my heart near to God or is it far from God? Is my heart beat with his heart or his concerns my concerns is his truth, my truth. You can do all the activity associated with church and Christianity, even privately do those things and still be a hypocrite because whatever it is you're up to, if you don't really care what God thinks, if, you're not, if it's not really about him, then it's a show and you're an actor. There's plenty of people like that. Don't be one. It's the heart that matters. Remember what God told Samuel when they were hunting for a king? He said, man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart, right? The Lord looks at the real us. 
And to tell you the truth, sometimes it scares me that God looks at my heart. I mean, that's kind of a scary idea. But it's a healthy, scary feeling. It's a healthy fear because whatever junk he sees in there, he also knows that deep down inside, at the center, what I most want is what he wants. And that's just because by his grace, I've been made new. I've been born again. And he's granted me that. Though I stumble in many ways, my heart really is his. And that's the sign of the new birth. That's what God's grace does on the inside of every believer. It makes your heart desire him and start to conform to him and love him and love the things he loves. Yes, there's many ways we stumble, but that's what grace does to us. It's not something we achieve. It's not something I achieve. It's something he does in us through this power of the Holy Spirit to make us love what's right and true and good, and he is the highest of all of that. So it's the heart. So Jesus has to shake loose the whole definition the scribes and the Pharisees gave to the concept of defilement. To them, defilement was physical. Oh, you touched that thing. You aren't supposed to touch that. Now you're defiled. Well, yeah, the law of Moses said you were ritually defiled. But is that what sin is all about? Is, was it washing the hands and all of that? Is that what it's all about? Look at uh, verse 10. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, hear and understand. Hear and understand. It is not what enters the mouth that defiles the man. I, you don't usually Jesus say, hear Jesus say something like, hear and understand. I mean, it's like, he's like majoring on this. He does say, truly, truly, I say to you, a lot of things to get your attention, but you can tell there's a bite in this. And he's going to the crowd. So after this discussion with the Pharisees, he goes back to the crowd and he says, look, you guys need to understand one thing. It is not what enters the mouth that defiles a man. It's what proceeds out of the mouth. That's what defiles a man. It's not what goes in. It's what comes out. Why? Because what comes out reveals the condition of the heart. This is life-changing truth. It's the key to understanding yourself. This is the big reveal about you and God and the relationship you have with God. This is the difference between having a religion and truly walking with God. Mere religion is vain. That's the word that's used. It's empty. It's of no benefit. Failure, sin, defilement, pollution, immorality comes from inside of us. It's us. It's the heart matter, not a rule matter. Well, the disciples, they have news for Jesus. Verse 12 the disciples came to and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? <laughs> I suppose Jesus was too dignified to ever say, duh, but, um, <laughs> but if it ever fit, <laughs> the Pharisees were offended. Oh my, oh my. We'll have to take out a press release and like they do in Washington, D.C., and what would it say? While we do have some differences with the scribes and Pharisees on some points of doctrine, we fully respect their faith and would never question their integrity or identity. No, he doesn't do that. You've offended them. And Jesus' response to the news that they're offended could lead us to a major theological discussion we don't have time for, but just grab the gist of it. Verse 13, he answered and said, Every plant that my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides for the blind. 
And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. That's a pretty remarkable thing to say, and they did not expect him to say that. Pharisees are weeds in the garden of God. He didn't plant them, and eventually they'll be uprooted. Let them alone. God did not plant them. That's true of all false teachers. We don't owe them any level of attention or respect. We owe them nothing except the gospel and the truth. And oh, they're offended. Well, like too bad. (laughs) We don't need to be obnoxious, but we don't need to give them any regard in that concern either. The disciples are all worried about offending what must have been a pretty important delegation from Jerusalem. I mean, these were the big boys. Jesus isn't worried at all about that. Let them alone, he says. They're blind guides of the blind. So to worry about the opinion of a Pharisee is like, it's as logical as using a blind seeing eye dog, you know? They are in bondage to error. They twist the truth. They're operating on false principles. They're utterly devoid of the spirit of God. So don't be too concerned with what they say. Somebody said it can never be right to follow the blind into a ditch, and that's true. (laughs) Well, Peter, good old Peter, still doesn't get it. Don't blame Peter. All of these people were raised since birth with the tradition of the elders. That's what they grew up in. Peter said to him, verse 15, explain the parable to us. Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile the man. Defilement in spiritual matters has nothing to do with rules and regulations made by men. It has nothing to do with what you eat, what goes in. That is mere physical process. And on judgment day, there will be no measurements made of whether you ate cattle or carrots. I mean, that's not going to be the question. Whether you had processed foods or organic foods from Trader Joe's. That's not going to be one of the big questions. You will be examined for what comes out of your mouth or the looks on your face, the words, the tone, the intent. That's what you will be judged for. That's what matters. And they matter because they're a reflection of the real you. How many times have I been guilty of doing something horrible and saying, you know, that's really not me? Well, of course it is. And politicians say that all the time, you know. They do some wretched thing and say, that's not who I am. Well, they should just say, that is who I am. I repent in dust and ashes. That would be much better. I'd much rather hear that. I was so wrong because that's who I am. I am a wicked human being. But we like to cover it up, don't we? I've done that, you know. Well, it's not what I meant. It sure looked like what you meant. (laughs) Jesus couldn't be more clear. What is the source of defilement? The human heart. Sin comes from us. Fallen creatures, rebels by choice and by nature. It's very popular today, even in Christian circles, to suggest that sin really comes from things that happen to us instead of from us. My parents did this to me. And that's why I'm like this. Or so-and-so did that. It's like the guys singing West Side Story, the gang members, you know. Our mothers are all our junkies. Our fathers all are drunks. 
golly Moses, that's why we are punks. I mean, people actually think that way. Naturally we're punks, they said, naturally. That may be true in a sense because we're fallen creatures and our fallen nature makes us respond to other people's sins with more sins of our own. It is a sinful nature that makes us react to bad things by reacting in sinful ways ourselves. That's not to minimize the reality of pain inflicted by other people on us because that can be very real and destructive. But part of the ugliness of their sin is that it provokes a destructive sin in us. And our sinful nature kicks in as well and reacts in horrible ways. So when you victimize somebody, you not only are sinning against them, you're causing them to sin even worse because they often respond in a sinful way to you. So experience in life and environments, just where you're growing up in or things like that, that can give direction to a sinful heart, but the sinful heart's already there. We're all that way. We're daughters of Eve and sons of Adam. Any sins of ours, they're totally ours, and nobody else can be blamed for them. Jesus himself was horribly abused, and yet the Bible says, yet without sin, right? You don't have to sin. A righteous, truly righteous person does not sin in response to sin against somebody else, from somebody else. So they can give direction to sin, but they don't require it. We don't have to sin because we're sinned against. But we do sin because we are sinners. And Jesus says nothing about environment in terms of where our sins come from. Verse 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slander. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with one unwashed hands, that doesn't defile a man. That's quite a list he gives. Most of us can find ourselves in there somewhere, maybe everywhere. And if we can find ourselves in that list, we're defiled, and we need to be honest about that. All the human corruption in the world comes from corrupt human hearts, period. And all the shameful thoughts and words and deeds that have characterized your life have come from your heart as mine have come from my heart. It's us and we have to own that. So we're in a predicament, huh? And that's really one of the reasons the gospels don't begin with the crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, the the death of Jesus for sin is, that's the center of the whole salvation story. Why bother with all these chapters leading up to there? Well, first we need to see what righteousness looks like. So if you look at his life, you see what righteousness looks like, and we have to be told what righteousness really is, and that's what he's doing. He's teaching us that. So his words and his life give us the standard by which we should measure ourselves. And we measure ourselves by him, and if we do that, what are we left with? Shame. Because <laughs> we're not him, not even close. Shame if we're awake. If we're awake. If we're sleeping, we don't notice because we don't measure, we don't bother. We are profoundly fallen, but many people are asleep. So we need to take a good look at ourselves and if by God's grace grace we should see ourselves truly, then we can appreciate more when the cross comes into the picture and what Jesus did for us because we will see in our hearts so much corruption and so, much, so many ways we've offended God and hurt God and ignored God and uh, the fact that Jesus took all of that sin on the cross, it's incredible. 
that he bore the penalty for all of that. But how can I look? How can I bear seeing the wickedness in my own heart? Well, if you feel that way, I have really good news because seeing that wickedness in your own heart is the path to life. That's the way out. Through the sacrifice of Christ by his blood, God invites wicked you to be reconciled to him through his son's death on your behalf, his atonement. He wants you near. He's inviting you to come near. You just have to come through his son. There's no reason to be far from God. You don't, your shame should not keep you from God because he's made a way. You have to let religion go and you have to humbly accept the gift of God's son as your king and your only hope of redemption. Jesus has revealed your problem and he is the solution to the problem. This text today is just about the revealing of the problem. But you keep going in here. He's the solution to the problem as well. Well, I think next week we're going to come back to verses 18 through 20 and um, look a little deeper at this heart thing, the source of sin. And if you have any questions you want to answer about those verses, write them to me this week, not, not Saturday night, but send them to me this week and uh, I'm, I might can answer them for you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your love. Your holiness condemns us in so many ways, but your love saves unworthy creatures like us, and we thank you for that. The gospel is our life, not religion, and we pray that you would help us always to understand that, and we give you glory and thanksgiving in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.